This morning, as we continue our study in Matthew, we're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 26, verses 57 to 68. So if you are home, if you're here, uh, open up your Bibles, open up your app, flip open your laptop, and uh, find, find the Scripture passage to follow along. Matthew chapter 26, we'll be reading verses 57 to 68. Those who had arrested Jesus took him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the teachers of the law and the elders had assembled. But Peter followed him at a distance, right up to the courtyard of the high priest. He entered and sat down with the guards to see the outcome. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for false evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death. But they did not find any, though many false witnesses came forward. Finally, two came forward and declared, This fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. Then the high priest stood up and said to Jesus, Are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent. The high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God, tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. You have said so, Jesus replied. But I say to all of you, from now on you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothes and said, He has spoken blasphemy. Why do we need any more witnesses? Look, now you have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? He is worthy of death, they answered. Then they spit in his face and struck him with their fist. Others slapped him and said, Prophesy to us, Messiah, who hit you? Two weeks ago, we looked at the details of what took place in the Garden of Gethsemane just prior to this, when an unfair, unjust, mindless, cowardly mob of about a thousand, instigated by the Jewish religious leaders, came to arrest Jesus. And we saw how Jesus stood strong, majestic, and glorious in his power as he allowed them to arrest him in order to accomplish his Father's will. And that was only the beginning, as our scripture passage shows us this morning, as we look at the illegal, unjust trials of Jesus. As I was studying through all kinds of materials, as I was preparing the message, there was an outline that I came across that I wanted to use to help us keep on track this morning because there's a lot of stuff going on in this passage. We're going to look at the illegal and unjust confrontation Illegal and unjust convening, the conspiracy, the condemnation, and even the illegal and unjust conclusion of these trials. Let me give you a little bit of background of the Judaic justice system. This was the pride of the Jews. They always had a sense of fairness, their sense of equity, and their sense of justice. 
And the reason for that is that the Jewish system of jurisprudence and, and law and judgment was based primarily on one Old Testament passage, and that's in Deuteronomy chapter 16, verses 18 to 20. And here's what it says. Appoint judges and officials for each of your tribes in every town the Lord your God is giving you, and they shall judge the people fairly. Do not pervert justice or show partiality. Do not accept a bribe, for a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and twists the words of the innocent. Follow justice and justice alone, so that you may live and possess the land the Lord your God is giving you. Now that's God's basic standard for judgment and justice. Local judges judging the people with fairness and righteousness, never distorting what is true, not being partial, never taking a bribe, justice and only justice. Now, each small town had their own local Sanhedrin. Uh, Sanhedrin simply means sitting together. So the people would gather to sit together, and the local Sanhedrins consisted of 23 men chosen from among the elders of that particular village area. Um, and they were to be judge and jury, never to be the prosecutors. Now in Jerusalem, the capital city, there was what they called the Great Sanhedrin, or the Great Council, and this was composed of 71 members, 23 chief priests, 23 four elders chosen from the local Sanhedrins in the area, 23 scribes, they were kind of the secretaries and the, the, uh, the lawyers, plus the high priest, which made 71, so they had an odd number, so when they had a vote, uh, it would never be a tie. Now, the great Sanhedrin there in Jerusalem was the final court of appeal. Anyone who felt that the judgment made at a lower level was not fair, could appeal to the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem, which was kind of like our system with the uh, Supreme Court, the highest court. They were the highest and ultimate ruling body in Israel. Now, the Sanhedrin, in terms of criminal procedure, guaranteed a number of things to a person. Number one, they guaranteed a public trial. In other words, there was to be no hidden, secret, clandestine trials. Everything was to be open and exposed so that no one could be framed or railroaded uh, into some kind of execution or some kind of penalty without a just trial among the, the public. Secondly, the trials were to be held in open court during the day. Again, to protect against wrongdoing on the part of the court, trying to hide something at night. The Sanhedrin guaranteed the right of self-defense. There was to be some, someone who provided a defense for the accused, and the words of the accused could not be used against him. No one could condemn themselves. In fact, the Jewish law said no person can himself testify against himself and on the basis of that single testimony be held guilty. That's an important point as we dig into this trial of Jesus. No one could be convicted of anything unless proven to be guilty by two or three witnesses. And this was taken extremely seriously because in Deuteronomy chapter 19, starting with verse 16, it says this, If a malicious witness takes a stand to accuse someone of a crime, 
The two people involved in the dispute must stand in the presence of the Lord before the priests and the judges who are in the office at the time. The judges must make a thorough investigation. In other words, the witnesses coming, you've got to investigate them and what they're saying. And if the witness proves to be a liar, listen to this, if the witness proves to be a liar giving false testimony against a fellow Israelite, then do to the false witness as that witness intended to do to the other. Wow. You must purge the evil from among you. So if a false witness came testifying to kill somebody and they found out to be a false witness, the witness then was to be put to death. Fifthly, a verdict could not be carried out for three days to make sure it was fair. And on the second day, the day between uh, of those three days, there was to be fasting and serious contemplation by the members of the Sanhedrin, this ruling body, uh, in case they had a change of heart as they thought about this, in case other evidence came, came up that they had to consider. And this meant that no cases could be decided during feast days. This is important because remember, this was over the Passover time, feast time because it was against the law to fast on a feast day. The scribes then uh, were then to take careful note that the proceedings were being carried out properly and to write down the decisions of each member of the court. So all this stuff was laid out in their law. This is how we do it. This is proper. This is just. This is fair. Now, this is really very important to know as we go through this particular trial of Jesus because we're going to see how they violated all of these things and much more. See, in the Jewish trial of Jesus, and this is key, they violated every single law of justice and jurisprudence known to them. Every single one of them willfully and purposefully so the trial of Jesus is, comes down to being the most unjust trial in human history. It has to be because this court condemned to death the only truly innocent person who ever lived. It was a mockery of justice. Now, as we look into this, we find that Jesus actually had two major trials. First was a Jewish religious trial that we're going to be looking at today, and then a Roman secular political trial trial. And the reason is that the Jews were occupied by Rome. We know that. We've talked about that before. Rome was an authority and had control over them, and therefore the Jews didn't have the right to, to, of execution. They couldn't kill a criminal. The Romans reserved that right. So the Jews could condemn Jesus to death. They could do that part but they couldn't actually execute him. So whatever they could accomplish in their religious trial, they had to sell the Romans on this because the Romans were the ones then would have to take out, take, carry out that, uh, that, that trial and kill Jesus. Now, as if that wasn't bad enough, each of those trials had three parts to it. And this all happened within a very short amount of time. The Jewish trial began when Jesus was taken to Annas. Annas sent him to Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin in the middle of the night. And then the third phase, Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin met again in the morning after dawn to try to legitimize the evil proceedings that they had carried out during the night in front of the crowd. And after they finished their work, they pushed him off to the Romans. And that meant they took him first to Pilate. Pilate sent him to Herod. 
Herod sent him back to Pilate, and Pilate condemned him to death. So three parts for each of these major types of trials. And all the series of trials leads to the execution of Jesus Christ. And isn't that they found something out about him, and therefore they killed him. It's that they wanted him dead. They had to invent a means to bring about his death. The sentence was already determined. It was the crime they didn't have. So with that in mind, let's take a look at the illegal and unjust confrontation. Look at verse 57 there in Matthew uh, 26. Those who had arrested Jesus took him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the teachers of the law and the elders had assembled. Now, Matthew says they took him to Caiaphas, the high priest. That's, that's true, but Matthew doesn't give the first phase. That, that's actually, this is actually the second phase that Matthew starts with. But in order to get that first phase uh, part of it, we have to take a peek at John chapter 18, because it's really quite important here, and because that's where we find the unjust confrontation that takes place. John 18, verse 12 says this, Then the detachment of soldiers with the commander and the Jewish officials arrested Jesus. Now remember that happened in the Garden of Gethsemane. They tied him up, arrested him. They bound him and brought him first to Annas, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest that year. Now, if Caiaphas is a high priest and he is the ruling head of the Sanhedrin, the final court, why in the world did they take Jesus to Annas, his father-in-law, first? Well, it turns out that Annas was kind of the godfather of high priests. He was behind everything. Nothing happens without Annas knowing about it and signing off on it. You see, Annas had been the high priest for about five or six years previous to this. And according to the Old Testament, you were high priest until you died. You don't elect high priests. Well, apparently, there had been a falling out between Annas and the Roman government. So the Romans had deposed him, Annas, and had replaced him with Caiaphas, his son-in-law, for that year. That's why Scripture says Caiaphas was high priest that year. But in the minds of the Jews, Annas was really still the high priest. And Annas hated Jesus. He hated Jesus because Jesus was a threat to his security, to his power, to his prestige, to his income, everything. You remember when Jesus cleared the markets in the temple courts twice? They were known as the bazaars of Annas. He got a cut of everything. He was behind all of that. Remember what Jesus said there? How is it that my father's house is to be a house of prayer? You have been made, made it into what? A den of thieves. And so, in effect, Jesus called Annas and all his cohorts a bunch of thieves. So Annas is behind this whole plot, pulling the strings, and so they send Jesus to him in his house, which is illegal. It's illegal because it's at night, and it's in his house. These court proceedings are supposed to be carried out in the daytime in the temple court area. So the religious leaders and soldiers take Jesus to Annas because, you know, he'll know what to do. I mean, he's really the high priest. And they're assuming they'll get some kind of charge or indictment from Annas that they can then take to the Sanhedrin. Look what happens in John 18, verse 19. The high priest, talking about Annas, he questioned Jesus 
about his disciples and his teachings. He questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. There's no charge. There's no indictment. Annas had no charge. He was fishing. He was fishing. He's trying to get Jesus to say something to indict himself, which is, again, totally illegal. He violates all sense of justice. But Jesus reminds him of the protocol. Verse 20 of that same chapter, John 18, I have spoken openly to the world, Jesus replied. I always taught in synagogues or at the temple where all the Jews come together. I said nothing in secret. Why question me? Ask those who heard me. Surely they know what I said. He's saying, you can't ask me that. Bring your own witnesses. You can't make me indict myself. I'm sure this is infuriating to Annas. He's not used to being talked to like that. Even the guards and officers were were shocked that he dare speak to him like that. In verse 22, it says, When Jesus said this, one of the officials nearby slapped him in the face. Is this the way you answer the high priest? They, they answered. You know, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 23 tells us, when they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. He did not retaliate. He just turned to them and said, if I said something wrong, Jesus replied, testify as to what is wrong. But if I spoke the truth, why did you strike me? They were so frustrated at this point. They had no idea where to go with that. And verse 24 says, Then Annas sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. So we see the illegal, unjust confrontation take place first at the, in the house of Annas at night. It's the middle of the night, illegal. It was without witnesses. It's illegal. There was no crime. There was no charge. Annas had no legal authority. He wasn't even an official prosecutor in any sense. And his home was an improper place to hold any of those hearings. And as, we go, as we go back then to Matthew 26, and we see what takes place with Caiaphas, and we see the illegal and unjust convening in verse 57, and we're going to pick it up there. Those who had arrested Jesus took him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the teachers of the law and the elders had assembled. Now, this was the official high court, the Supreme Court, the Sanhedrin. In the middle of the night, who does that? ever. Only those who are doing things in secret, right? Under the cover of night, trying to hide something. This was planned. This was planned ahead of time. While they were, uh, had, them, had Jesus at the house of Annas, they were running around getting the Sanhedrin members together to have a middle of the night clandestine court case. So in the dark of night, Jesus is then transported from the house of Annas over to the house of Caiaphas. Again, totally legal. Illegal, excuse me. Now, for someone like Annas and Caiaphas, they'd have these large houses surrounded by a large courtyard. Uh, That's very typical in a lot of cultures. When my wife and I were in Africa, uh, we saw that often when we go to the home of the Dembele family. uh, We'd walk into a large courtyard before you actually got to the house, and that's where life took place. The kids would be playing around, the, the, the fire would be going over here, they'd be doing some cooking over here, there'd be some wash basins over here, the women would be washing clothes. Uh, over under the tree here, the old men would sit there and they'd be giving counsel and, and be, be sharing wisdom. So all of life kind of takes place in this courtyard before you actually get to the home. 
It's the same kind of setup here at Caiaphas's home. In fact, verse 58 be, uh, begins to tell us about Peter, where it says, But Peter followed them at a distance right up to the courtyard of the high priest. He entered and sat down with the guards to see the outcome. And we're going to be talking a little bit more about Peter uh, next week. And there's, there's a fire going, and they sit around the fire there as well. So they were in this courtyard, but Luke tells us that they took Jesus on into the house of the high priest. Now why? I'm assuming probably because they didn't want everybody else to be witnessing the illegal stuff that they were carrying out uh, inside. And there Jesus confronted with the Sanhedrin and Caiaphas. Now, the law of Israel said no one is to be tried any other place than the hall of judgment, which was in the temple complex. It's to be done during the day. It's to be public. And if that weren't enough, the Sanhedrin is going to have to make up charges. They weren't allowed to do that because no charges were brought by Annas. They were hoping that Annas would come up with a charge for them. And if that weren't enough, the Sanhedrin is going to uh, take on this, uh, this responsibility of being the prosecutor, which violates the law. And the only thing they had was a sentence. In their mind, they knew what the outcome was going to be. It was going to be death. They had to make up a crime to go with it. So everything, everything was illegal and unjust. The time was illegal. It was at night. The place was illegal. The house of the high priest, the procedure was illegal. There was no crime. The function was illegal. The Sanhedrin was a prosecutor rather than just the judge and jury. The time was illegal. They were doing this during the feast time which these kind of court cases should never take place. The means was illegal, the bribery of a tra traitor by the name of Judas. No bribery was supposed to be allowed. They were so blinded by hatred for one person, they didn't care, and they weren't going to stop. And that brings us to the illegal, unjust conspiracy Look at verse 59. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for false evidence against Jesus so they could put him to death. There's the sentence. That's their ultimate goal. The depravity of it all boggles the mind. They were supposed to be looking for the truth, but all they wanted to do was kill him. That's the only thing that mattered to them. And the only way you can kill an innocent man is to have people lie about him. So what did they do? Well, they went out, in the, again, in the middle of the night. This is midnight or so, trying to stir up some liars, trying to find somebody who could come in and do the very thing which their law condemned so strongly. They had to have witnesses because the Old Testament law says you have to have at least two or three witnesses. So all the chief priests and elders and council, the whole Sanhedrin, were out looking for false witnesses against Jesus so they could kill him. And what did they find? Verse 60, but they did not find any. Couldn't they find anybody? Oh yes, they found a number. It says, though many false witnesses came forward. So they found people that would come forward. A lot of people came and apparently said a lot of stuff, but nothing was useful. Because in Mark chapter 14, verse 56, it says, Many testified falsely against him, but their statements did not agree. They couldn't use these false witnesses. It was obvious that they were all lying and they couldn't get their story straight. 
Ah, finally, two. Two false witnesses came who had gotten their so- stories sort of similar. We read in verse 61, finally two came forward and declared, this fellow said, isn't that interesting? They didn't say Jesus, this fellow, whoever. This fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. Now, the, though the two were referring to the same incident, and you'll, you'll recall that, we'll look at that in just a second here, the details of their stories were different. We find the testimony of the other false witness over in Mark chapter 14, 58. Listen to the words he said. We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with human hands, and in three days will build another not made with hands. And then Mark adds, and even then their testimony did not agree. The guy in Matthew says, I am able to, Jesus said, I am able to destroy the temple. The one in Mark says, Jesus said, I will destroy the temple. The guy in Matthew says, and I will rebuild in three days. The guy in Mark says, in three days, uh, uh, we'll, I'll build another not made with hands. Do you remember what Jesus actually said? In John chapter 2, verse 19, Jesus, talking to the Jews, said, you destroy this temple. He didn't say I was going to do it. You destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. And as we know, he was referring to his body that they were going to kill and his resurrection in three days. Ah, details, details. In their hatred, they thought, close enough. They didn't care. You know, if I didn't know Jesus Christ was perfect, and I believe that with all my heart, if I didn't know Jesus Christ was absolutely sinless, that he was a son of God as he claimed, this incident alone, if you look at it carefully, would convince me that he was. And here's why. Hell is running this whole show. The powers of hell is be, are, are behind this. Satan has entered Judas. This is the hour, the power of darkness. Jesus said that. All the best of hell, if you can call it the best of hell, the brains of hell, Satan and all his brilliant, powerful, resourceful demons and all, uh, are all after an accusation against Jesus. And then on top of that, all of earth's leaders in that place, religious and government, are all after an accusation against Jesus. Listen, when all hell and all of earth, energized by supernatural resources and intelligence, are desperately trying to find something against Jesus, but can't find anything, that tells me there isn't anything to find. This has got to be one of the greatest apologetics of the perfection of Jesus Christ anywhere in the pages of Scripture. If there was anything he ever did wrong, they would have found it. If it had to be revealed by demons, they would have found it. But there was no crime, absolute perfection. This is God in human flesh, no less. See, really the only people on trial that day, really, were the people who were accusing Jesus. And they showed themselves to be wretched, wicked, sinful, unjust men. You know, when you come into confrontation with Christ, 
you will be exposed as they were that day. And at this point, Caiaphas tries to take charge, and what happens is fairly dramatic here. Now, before we move on, there's something we need to understand. Though this is all terrible, horrendous, with a conniving and scheming of both men and hell, it's important to understand that it's also a very holy moment because it is God at work. Because here God uses the anger of Satan and the hatred of Satan and the evil of Satan to fit within his own redemptive purposes. We could take that phrase right out of Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, that we know so well. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Isn't that an amazing verse when you put it in this context? So much more meaning to that verse right now, right? A word spoken by Joseph 1,700 years before, but meant for Jesus on this day. We must always keep in mind, though this was Satan's hour, whatever freedom Satan had in which to operate, it always was within the confines of God's will and His purpose. Remember what Peter said in the, on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, verse 23, that Jesus Christ was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. No surprises here. Listen to, to what's actually happening. This is the coming together of the plotting of hell, the coming together of the plots of the depraved, Christ-rejecting religious leaders, and the coming together of the plan of God. And I want us to understand this. Just because it is the plan of God, it in no way lessens the evil of hell's conspiracy. Just because it is the plan of God, it in no way lessens the evil of the men who carried it off on earth. Their evil guilt is not lessened at all. You see, it is the plan of God, but it was their will to do it. They chose to be co-conspirators of hell by their own will. And so there is no elimination of guilt because it was part of God's plan. What happens is that God overrules and uses their chosen evil to do His good work. Amazing. And so we pick up the scene after having found the two false witnesses because they were too invested now. They, they, couldn't, they couldn't back down. They couldn't face the truth that Jesus might actually be the Messiah. They had to go through it. They had to kill him. And that brings us to the illegal and unjust condemnation. Notice what happens as the frustration is mounting. Now they're in a hurry. Time is running out. They've got to get this all done during the night. They've got to get this wrapped up before dawn when the crowds are going to come out, because they, up until now, Jesus was very favorable among the crowds, uh, and they were afraid of what the multitudes would do. So in his frustration, verse 62 says, Then the high priest stood up and said to Jesus, Are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? Aren't you going to say anything? But it says in verse 63, Jesus remained silent. And that was his right by law. 
Maimonides, the Jewish medieval scholar, said this, and I quote, The law does not permit the death penalty as a sentence for a sinner by his own confession. Their law gave him the right to stand there silent, which he did. He stands there silent in majesty and in total control. There is no need for retaliation, no need for vindication, no need for self-defense, no need to deny anything. He stands there resolutely headed for the cross, knowing that this is the hour to die for the sins of the world. Isaiah 53 says, As a sheep before its shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. And Caiaphas knew it wasn't the silence of guilt. He knew. This was a silence of innocence. It was a silence of dignity, a silence of majesty, a silence of integrity, a silence of his trust in his father. And then Caiaphas came to the end of his rope and basically went for the jugular here. Verse 63, the high priest said to him, I charge you, I charge you under oath by the living God, tell us if you are the Messiah, the, Messiah, the Son of God. He uses an oath that is the most sacred oath that a Jew could ever call upon. That is to say, you answer this question truthfully on the basis that you are vowing before the living God that is the God who is alive and hears you, the God who is alive and punishes liars, the God who is a God of truth. This is what they wanted to hear Jesus say unequivocally in front of them. Because to them, to claim to be the Son of God is to claim deity. And to claim to be deity is blasphemy. If you are not God, only God has a right to do that, and it's blasphemous for a man to claim to be God. And so they want Jesus with his own mouth to blaspheme. And then they will have the reason for execution because in Leviticus 24 it says, if anyone blasphemes the name of God, he is to, put, he is to be put to death. That's their goal. That's their end game. Again, there is no crime at all. The only crime they could come up with was that he said he was God. And we know that wasn't actually a crime because that was the truth. Do you realize what happened here? Jesus was executed not for saying he was, a, he was God apart from the truth, but for being God he said he was. This truth was never hidden all through his ministry. He pronounced it in the temple when he opened up the scroll of Isaiah and said, today this prophecy is fulfilled in your presence. They knew what he was talking about. They knew who he was claiming to be then. He proclaimed it to the Samaritan woman at the well that he was the Messiah. All the Jews knew his claim because they hailed him as the Messiah at the triumphal entry. You remember as we went through that passage, Hosanna to the son of David. That was a title for the Messiah. Caiaphas knew all of that, but wanted to hear it from Jesus' own mouth. Again, totally illegal and unjust because the accused cannot condemn himself. But they didn't care. They were desperate. So he pulls out his trump card and says, I charge you under oath by the living God. And it's fascinating that at that point, Jesus basically steps up and proclaims unequivocally the truth of who he is. Verse 64 there in Matthew says, You have said so, Jesus replied. And Mark chapter 14, verse 62 adds, I am, Jesus said, ego 
a me. You remember that phrase. I am. It was time. The cross was right around the corner. It's time to die. The plan was laid. It had to happen now. Jesus was still in control. But he didn't stop there. He said, I am. And he continues by quoting Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, one of the great and familiar messianic prophecies that they all understood. But I say to all of you, from now on you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. That's an amazing claim. Yes, he was saying, I am God. And soon you will see me exalted sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One. Everyone knew he was referring to God Almighty. He's saying, I'm the one of whom Daniel spoke when Daniel outlined how the Messiah would come and be exalted, how the Messiah would be lifted up to the right hand of God, how the Messiah would come in the clouds of glory. He spoke of me. From now on, you will see the Son of Man. He's kind of saying, I'll be back. With that in their eyes, he had condemned himself by his own words. Again, totally unjust and illegal condemnation. But that brings us to the fifth point, the illegal and unjust conclusion in verse 65. Then the high priest tore his clothes and said, He has spoken blasphemy. Why do, you need any more, why do we need any more witnesses? He throws out all sense of fairness and legality. We don't even need witnesses. The witnesses weren't doing them any good anyway. They weren't interested in the truth because they couldn't handle the truth. They made up their own truth. He has spoken blasphemy. Total lie, but they proclaimed it as truth. And they shut down anybody who tried to say otherwise. There was plenty of proof of the truth if they had wanted the truth. Remember back in John chapter 10, verses 37 and 38, Jesus talking to the Pharisees said, Why then do you accuse me of blasphemy? Because they had accused him fairly regularly of blasphemy. Because I said, I am God's son. Do you not believe me unless I do the works of my father? But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. So there was proof there if they wanted to see the proof. But they didn't want to know the truth. They closed their minds to it for fear of it. And there are people like that today who reject Christ, not because they've examined him and found him wanting, not because they've examined him and found that it's not true, but it's because they are afraid to examine it. Because it will overturn their life and it will expose them for who and what they are. They'd rather go to hell blind than find the truth. Incredible. That's stark. That's harsh. But it's reality. And so Caiaphas does what a high priest had the right to do, according to Leviticus chapter 21. He tore his clothes. He tore his clothes. A high priest could not tear his garments for his own sorrow but should be expected to tear his garments when God was dishonored. And so he does a little theatrics, feigned outrage. This is outrageous. He's not sad. He's not grieved because God's name is dishonored. He's happy because Jesus can now be executed. He's giddy with joy, but he puts on a show to the public, pure theatrics. 
We see this all the time on TV, don't we? Feigned outrage to make their lives more believable and to try to influence the multitudes. That's all he was doing, crying blasphemy, outwardly wanting to appear to defend the holiness of God, but inwardly happy to finally be able to get rid of this Jesus Christ. Why do we need any more witnesses? Fait accompli, finished, we're done here. He's guilty. No need to take a vote. Again, it was a mob rule. Mark 14, 64 tells us they all condemned him as worthy of death. Why? Because, their own li- because of their own lies and their own lives. Verse 66, look now, you have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? He is worthy of death, they answered. They all, that, that along with the next verse, verse 66 and, uh, 67 and 68, show us how far gone they were and how evil they had become, how depraved they had become. Then they spit in his face and struck him with their fists. Others slapped him and said, Prophesy to us, Messiah, who hit you? Folks, this is the Jewish elite religious leaders. This is the high priest and the elders and the chief priests and the scribes. This is supposedly the best of the best, the best of the religious leaders come together to constitute the Supreme Court. Unbelievable. Luke adds in chapter 22, verse 65, and they said many other insulting things to him. That translation is a little mild. The Greek word that is used, and this is significant in light of the charge against Jesus, the word used that Luke actually uses in the Greek is blasphemeo. To blaspheme, to speak reproachfully, rail at, revile. Do you catch that? The blasphemer here is not Jesus. The blasphemers are all the rest of those people. Jesus claimed to be God. That's not blasphemy, that's truth. Spitting in the face of God, that's blasphemy. That's blasphemy of an absolutely inconceivable type. One of the worst things somebody could do. You say, it's horrifying, it's unbelievable. Yes, but folks, it's still happening today. Still happening today. Anyone to this day who rejects Jesus Christ stands with the spitters. Why can we say that? Because Jesus says, if you're not with me, you're what? You're against me. There's no middle ground. There's no saying, ah, I'm, I'm ambivalent. There's no ambivalence. You're either for or you're against. And the irony of the situation is that those who misjudge Jesus will be judged rightly by him someday. Tables will be turned. And if you wrongly judge Jesus Christ, he won't wrongly judge you. He'll rightly judge you. And this is the sin that damns one to hell. It's a sin of unbelief. That's the unpardonable sin. It's a sin of the proud, the sin of the impenitent, the sin of the independent, the sin of the self-sufficient unbelief. John 3.18 says, Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe, unbelief, stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. It's a sin of standing apart from Christ and thinking we can be right with God without Christ. 
You know what struck me? As I was working through this trial, this horrible mockery of a trial, I look at this scene and I was overwhelmed at the grace of God, the grace of Jesus Christ. Because the trial that I deserved is playing out in his undeserved trial. My deserved sentence, the sentence that I deserved, is enacted in his undeserved sentence. My deserved execution is carried out in his undeserved execution. My deserved condemnation is carried out in his undeserved condemnation. But because I place my faith in Jesus Christ, all of that was done for me. That's overwhelming. I mean, God should have spit in my face and punched me and slapped me and executed me and condemned me. (laughs) Christ took my place. Christ takes your place in that horrible, illegal, and unjust trial because that's how much God loves me. That's how much God loves you. And if you've stepped away from God, stepped away from Jesus Christ, he still has his arms out open for you, to you. It's not too late. You haven't gone too far. You haven't done one too many bad things where God will say, that's it. Jesus is still saying, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Let me close with something that I read as I was preparing this week. I was once a captive at the will of Satan, but Christ became a captive that I might be set free. I was once an outcast forsaken, a soul lost without fellowship, but Christ became forsaken and alone, forsaken by all his own, that I might be made forever a member of the family of God. I was once denied compassion and denied sympathy, but Jesus went to a compassionless death and is now my sympathetic high priest and understands me and cares for me. I was once accursed from God, but Jesus became accursed for me. I was once a false witness who denied the truth about Christ, but Christ endured false witnesses to make me his own, and now no one can ever bring an accusation against me, even if it's true, that will stand against my salvation. I saw Jesus silent for me. Shall I not fill my mouth with praise for him? I was dead, but Jesus died that I might live. Wonderful grace of Jesus, greater than all my sin. How shall my tongue describe it? Where shall its praise begin? Taking away my burden, setting my spirit free for the wonderful grace of Jesus reaches me. Wonderful, the matchless grace of Jesus, deeper than the mighty rolling sea, higher than the mountain, sparkling like a fountain, all-sufficient grace for even me, broader than the scope of my transgressions, greater far than all my sin and shame. Oh, magnify the precious name of Jesus. Praise his name. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Father, this morning we thank you, we glorify you. 
Thank you for your grace, wonderful grace, the matchless grace. We can't imagine it. It's beyond our, our, our finiteness, our finite thinking. All the great imaginations that we could have go so much farther beyond. Father, you poured out your grace through Jesus Christ, and he took all that horrible, horrible, unjust, unfair mockery of a trial in our place. Father, I pray that if there is one this morning who has, has stepped away from you, who has been sucked into the doubts of who Jesus is, who you are, what your scripture says, Father, I pray with those arms of grace that you'd reach out and encompass them and draw them back to you, that this may be a day where they say, I, I come back I know Jesus is the Son of God. I believe it with all my heart and I trust Him and I want Him to be the Lord of my life. Father, I pray that You do a new work in us and let us walk in that grace and the majesty of who Christ is and what He did for us. In Jesus' name, amen.